Thank you. It is really wonderful to be here. I have a deep love, Meryl and I, she's in Australia, uh, seeing our kids and grandkids for the first time in two and a half years. And um, I, I'm really nervous, but not nervous in that, you know, I, I've not spoken in public before. It's a kind of a nervousness that you get when there's a truth that you are wanting to communicate, but you feel your words are limited and your ideas are fragile. So I'm going to ask you really to work with me this morning. Um, I, I think it's a key doctrine that God wants to give the church. We're going to nerd out a little bit on some, some um, definitions, and then we're going to go and tell the story of the text. But before I do this, Kira, I want you to come up here, please, if you don't mind. So, you know, two things. One, there are those who get little acclaim or recognition for what they do. Only get attention when things don't work out as it should. And this is one of those incredible gifts to the church who does what she does without applause, without, she doesn't do it for the applause or for the recognition. And uh, I want to commend you for that. You sit behind that corner over there, and it doesn't enter your mind, I don't think, that uh, you need or want gratitude or affirmation. But there's a second part to what I want to say. I think our gifts are quite similar because we're storytellers. And uh, there is such power in storytelling. You tell stories through music, through video, through photography. I tell stories with words. And uh, when I walked in here this morning, Kira made a comment about my jacket. And uh, I, I like jackets, I, which is stupid living in LA. You, you should not like jackets. But as I walked into the hall, the Spirit of God told me to give it to you. So I, and it is my favorite, but I felt like I'm asking you if I can wear it while I preach and then I give it to you after the meeting. So, she's a wonderful woman who serves wonderfully. Thank you. So, I don't care if anyone likes my boots. You're not getting them. I've just bought them. We've been through a remarkable few years, haven't we? And I was mulling over this both as a human being, as a, as a family member, as a leader of my local church, and then our broader global collective. And I realized there's an incredible similarity between the persecution, firstly initiated in Acts 8, and then secondly, um, the pandemic. Now, I'm going to be very brief because I want to show you the comparisons and how similar they've been and how we've missed the moment, I think. I arrived in time to hear George's point that we are choosing the wrong battles. What happens at both a pandemic and a persecution, I want to suggest, is that one, people scatter. And there's been a phenomenal scattering of God's people moving from urban centers to rural places, places like California to Idaho, 
um, in our context and in the place like the Dubai, there's been a scattering that takes place. Secondly, there's been the frustration at not being able to gather. This is not a political statement. This is purely a statement of government. Thirdly, the possibility of death. People have died both because of the pandemic and the persecution. A deep sense of loneliness. Deep sense of loneliness. We do a work in, in a place called the Towers, which is the biggest building in Costa Mesa, California. And um, it is the accommodation for low-income retirees. Basically, they have no money. And so we've got teams that go in and feed them. And some of them have no had no physical contact with anyone but our team coming, knocking on the door and bringing them food and finding out if they were okay. You see, the pandemic and the persecution provides an incredible sense of loneliness. Fifthly, there's a trauma of mental health. My wife's a marriage and family therapist. She put in, uh, last week just before I flew out, she put in eight hours of solid therapy, and she could have done 24. Fear and anxiety have heightened as people have had to find inner strength and inner resolve in a very traumatic, fragile, vulnerable time. The deconstruction of the church and of faith has pitter-pattered its way alongside us. There's been deep division. Tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. I'm not for the vaccination. I'm not against it. Honestly, I am for the mission of God. And if it required me to get a vaccination, I put my arm out. I said, jab me as many times as you want. Because when I stand before my heavenly father one day, and please hear my heart here, he is not going to ask me, did you get vaxxed? He's going to ask me, did you go and preach the gospel in the nations of the world? That's the question he's going to ask me. And I'm stunned and staggered by people who have made it. So, and, and there are some here. I know that. And I'm sorry I'm offending you. But I think we miss the point at the end of the day, the driving notion of sovereign obedience is doing what Jesus has asked me to do. I've missed anniversaries. I've missed birthdays. I've missed key family moments because the Lord has asked of me to be somewhere else in the world. An injection? Come on. Really? Really? I'm sorry, I don't get it. Maybe you are way cleverer than I, and it's above my pay grade. Number nine, economic fragility. Number ten, a loss of trust and at least uncertainty about leadership. Now, what do we do with all that? This is a global phenomenon. This is truly a global phenomenon. From a village in India to New York City. New York City that was shut down. Shut down down there were piles of bodies outside the morgue because the morgue couldn't have the bodies and they couldn't bury them quick enough everyone was affected by it how on earth do we make success of that now ladies and gentlemen the true lesson i want to suggest is the lesson of doctrine when all else is uncertain we find our way to the true depth of the biblical text and we go back to the text on the foundation of the doctrines that God has for us. Every one of us has had to find out, what do I really believe? Not what did my mom tell me in the songs she sang me in the kinder, you know, the, the kids' ministry. And, and what did the preacher, even in my congregation, 
It isn't about what Chris has said. It's what do I essentially believe? How do I deal with this? Because there will be others to come, and their name might not be pandemic. It may be something else. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the doctrine of providence. And at an immediate glance, you know that its root is the same word as provide. Providence. It's not a familiar word to us, is it? It's not a word we talk about, you know, you're having your cup of coffee and how's your providence? Or my providence is really cool. You know, it's not like part of our common speech and language. It was in the 1600s in America, where in uh, Rhode, Rhode Island, a pastor started a city that he called Providence because it was so much part of what he was doing, growing a nation, dealing with the Indians, dealing with customs, dealing with economic disparities, and he said, I want to start a city that will be known as the Providence most holy God. Now, what does that word mean? Now, this is where I'm asking you to nerd out with me. If this is too wordy, think about Liverpool playing Manchester City tonight. I give you full permission to consider soccer as an alternative to definitions. But, but these definitions are actually compelling because the Baker's Dictionary said providence is the sovereign, we all know what that word means, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them towards a divinely predetermined end. Let's break it up quickly, and I've got lots to get through. It's sovereign. It means that God is willing and able. It's divine. It means that's what God is doing. Superintendence, it is God providing leadership in all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end. You're going to love the story I'm going to go through with you. One of the quotes I found that I cannot remember who I got it from said this, Providence is that unseen work of God by which He upholds, governs, and orchestrates all things. Think of the author. You know, that's what He's doing. He's upholding, He's governing, He's orchestrating, all towards a common sound. The beauty, not of the instruments that play when they warm up. And then suddenly he taps. All orchestrated together towards a common sound. Now we're beginning to understand providence a little bit. J.I. Packer, the great theologian who wrote a marvelous book on knowing God, said this, it's God's involvement in the world. A person takes action, an event is triggered by natural causes, Satan holds his, shows his hand, hand, three things, a person takes action, an event is triggered by natural causes, and Satan shows his hand, yet God overrules them. All right, it's getting better. I promise you, this is getting better. My favorite charismatic theologian, Rodman Williams, said this. Providence may be defined as the overseeing care and guardianship of God for all His creation. The doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of superficial optimism. 
Can I just help you here a little bit? I've been doing this for a long time. And probably one of the things I've struggled with the most in leading the church is pop theology. Where we get a little verse, and we will, I'm the head and not the tail. I'm on top and not beneath, you know. I can do all things as if God gave us mantras. And so we create the superficial optimism as we give ourselves the necessity of repeating as if they were what the Hindus do. And you, some of you know that better than me. And then the Krishna, Krishna, Rama, Rama. And so we don't have Krishna, Krishna, Rama, ching, ching. We have, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that even mean? It's superficial optimism. And if you've been in the charismatic movement, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I cannot be honest. I cannot be down. I cannot have a bad day. I cannot be weeping, money, because brother, you're the head, not the tail. Not today. Today, I am the tail. Because Jesus was in the garden when he said, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. If I don't have language and space to be Christ-like and voice my deep fragility, what on earth are we building? The doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of superficial optimism. It seeks to recognize the complexity of the world God has made the trial and travail in it, and to speak realistically of God's way of acting. It is a doctrine of profound realism. Alistair Begg, the uh, Scottish teacher, said, Proverbs 16.9 describes providence to him. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but God establishes their steps. The orchestra conductor comes and taps it. He said, you have warmed up. You have played your tunes. You have done your thing. Now we're going to build this great crescendo of music that is pleasing to the ear. Grab your Bibles with me if you don't mind. We're going to go to the book of Ruth. You with me? Was that too hard? I rushed through it, but boy, there's some beautiful, beautiful angles that brilliant men and women take us to in the doctrine of providence. In the days when the judges ruled, it's Ruth, it's chapter 1. You say, Chris, where on earth is Ruth? I can't find these four chapters anywhere. Go to Judges, find a judge, and it's the next book across. Turn right, and you will find it right there. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, all right, hang on a second, Chris, hang on. And this is a story being told here. This is not a book of principles. This is a story. It gives us history, historical context. In the time of the judges, okay, we got the history. In this town of Bethlehem, we got the geography. A man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Moab was the enemy. I, I don't want to get crazy political thing, but it's a little bit like a Jewish family moving in where Hezbollah is. It's not a cool gig, you know what I'm saying? The man's name was Elimech, Elimech, ah, oh, whatever. 
His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kition. And they were uh, Epaphrodites uh, from Bethlehem. I'm just rushing tonight. From Judah, and they went to Moab. Now, this is a beautiful story. Well, what happens if this was just a book? Those few verses, there's a famine in the land. The guy leads his family super well. They go across the border, actually across you know, the river, and they set up a new home, and God provides, and the boys get married. Hallelujah, great book, full stop, period point, next book. No, no, the story's not over yet. The providential hand of God has not been revealed yet. Naomi's walking around with a smile on her face, a bit like Michelle. Big smile on her face. My, my boys are married. Oh, look at the beautiful. Just fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Oh, God is good. Hallelujah. I told you, just declare the promises. Just stand on the word of God and look at what happens to you. Well, I tell you what happens. Your husband dies. Now, Elamech, Naomi's husband, died. But Lord, I, I stood on the promises. I, I, I held firm to your word. And, and, and you said it, and I believed it, and that settles it. And now my husband's died, and you're saying I'm a widow, and that's about as bad as it gets in Israel. Well, I got my boys. This is a great story. I'm going to miss my I'm going to miss my man, but my boys are still around. And then the boys died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand this is one story? And the question is, did God bless her more while her husband and boys were alive? Was she more in the favor of God or less? Has she somehow sinned and that's why her husband died? And, and you must understand a widow back in this time had nothing. There was no social security. There was no trust, no insurance, nothing to take care of her. She was empty. Was God different? Was he somehow changing his mind and having a really bad, grumpy day? Now, see, if we end the story here, the picture of God is profoundly confusing. Because the one minute he's blessing and the next minute he's dying. And I'm not saying God killed them, but you hear what I'm saying here. Which God is it? When she gets back there, I'm running ahead of myself because time is never my friend. When she gets back to Bethlehem, all the women come to her and call her Naomi. So Naomi, I mean, yeah. And she says, listen, please don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. What was the problem, Naomi? From the woman whose husband took her and the boys to a place where they could be fed and looked after, to the woman who returned with one daughter-in-law, was 
God different? You see, what we struggle with is we create a God in our image. If you take my Bible, I love scribbling in it. I write in red. So you go to the book of Ephesians and it's brown. I have touched it, prayed it, written on it. Go to Leviticus, not so much. So what have I done subconsciously is I've created a God in my image. I've handpicked, cherry-picked a few verses here and there from my favorite books of the Bible. I've created this God, and now I'm expecting this God to really behave well based on the way I've defined him. And when he doesn't behave well, I'm furious. I storm off in a huff because how dare God not act according to my definition? Providence overrules all that as we'll see in just a moment. Naomi returns desperate, defeated, and downcast. She says to the girls, girls, listen, I've got to go back to Israel. You Moabites, please go back to your people. Opera says, I will. Thank you. And they hug and they kiss and they say goodbye. Ruth comes and says, uh, Ruth means compassionate companion or friend. And she says, no, I can't. Now, now just pause again. We're talking about a woman who is from a redneck town, who has gone across the border to live in another country, who loses her man, who loses two of her sons, who loses her daughter-in-law. Is there any inkling that this woman's story I would be preaching from in the 21st century? I mean, we're talking Miss Ordinary. We're talking about someone who just struggles away to try to make sense of her life. Why on earth is she even written about? And she goes back and she is mull, to use a South Africanism. Thank you that I can. Americans would just look at me a little bit gaga-eyed. And then what about Ruth? Ruth's a Moabite. She doesn't even know the scrolls. Where would she have learned the Jewish scrolls? Do you think she honestly thought when she said, your people will be my people? Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And then, do you think they knew that almost every doggone wedding would have people quoting a Moabite? That's called providence. A heartbroken conversation on a dusty road between two desperate women. What on earth does that find place in our sacred scriptures? <sighs> she goes back. And she walks in and I've run ahead of myself. And she says, please don't call me Naomi anymore, which means sweetness. Please call me Mara because I am bitter. Why am I bitter? Because the God that I created in my image was the God who took me to another land, who put bread on my table, who gave me a super cool husband, who gave my, wife, my, my sons wives, and we were living such a good life. That is a lack of God, Harry. That is a lack of God. But this other God who lets my husband die, my boys die, and my one daughter-in-law leave me. That is not a lack of God. Is God schizophrenic? 
They're desperate, Naomi and Ruth. They're desperate. They've got no means of income. They've got property that they cannot develop as a farm. And one of the customs of the day, forgive my passion, this is just such a deep truth that's burning in my soul. And so the girls talk together, Naomi, who has nothing. Call me Mara, I'm a bitter old woman because the God I thought I knew I don't know and I don't even know if I want to serve him anymore. Ruth, from everything we read, it was a beautiful woman, but a beautiful in spirit woman, a compassionate companion. And she says, Mom, I tell you what, you stay here. And what I will do during the barley harvest is I will walk behind the harvesters and I will pick up the bits and pieces. Humble, 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 humble. And I will just gather together these odds and sods that they don't want to eat. I will gather them and I will bring them home and we can eat together. Mom, please don't worry. When she left, I wonder what Naomi thought to herself. Good girl. It's a good girl. It's a good girl. think you know the story she finds out that the farm belongs to a middle aged man Boaz means one with strength it was an older man and we, we know he was a really good man and, and he slept with his laborers in the field he was obviously a wealthy man so he could have slept in a more comfortable setting but he chose to sleep with his workers amongst the barley harvest and Naomi says to Ruth, she says, we can have a guardian redeemer. So in the culture of the day, when a woman is widowed, it was obligatory for the closest male relative to marry her, bring her into his home, and make sure that she was related to Naomi, but one person back. And so she says to uh, Ruth, Come on, use your imaginations, people. Two desperate women, one old and grumpy, one young and gorgeous with the purest of hearts. One who is obviously attractive to look at. And she says to Naomi, does to Ruth, tonight, when he's had something to eat and to drink, when he sleeps with a blanket over him, lift the blanket off his feet and lie at his feet, stinky, smelly feet. What kind of God would ask a young, attractive, gorgeous woman to lie at the feet of a middle-aged man who's been in the fields all day? Where is this God? Is he the God that we created when, when we left the famine and got blessed? Is, there, is he this harsh God who took my husband and my boys away? Is he the God of bitterness? Is he the God of the provision of a few morsels of barley? Is he the God that required me, says Ruth, to go gently? I don't want to offend you. I'm just going to pick up some pieces of barley here. Which, which one? 
Boaz concocts a plan. And what he does is he says to Ruth, Ruth, I'm going to make sure you get a guardian redeemer. It just smacks of Jesus, doesn't it? I'm going to get someone who will love you in your poverty, in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your despair, where you have nothing. I will guarantee you this podgy middle-aged man, forgive my imagination, with a receding hairline, a little bit of a wobbly belly, with smelly feet, I will make sure you have a guardian redeemer. The next day, he gathers 10 of the elders together, and he gathers the one man who is ahead of him in the familial pecking order. And he presents to the man in front of the elders, do you know, sir, there is the piece of land of Naomi? And he said, yes. And he said, do you know that you are the first in line to be the guardian redeemer? Yes, I do. Well, do you want her? I mean, do you want the, yes, yes, I want the property. And the guy's dollar signs are going through his eyes. And Boaz, with profound wisdom, says, but you understand, you get an old bitter widow with it. And the guy's like, dang. But you get Ruth, the cute, foxy little compassionate friend. And he says, dude, if I have to take this woman home, we are in big trouble. I'm out. Boaz then says in front of all the other elders, I will be their guardian redeemer. And they take a sandal and they shake on it. Now isn't that a good story? Shouldn't the story end there? But it doesn't. Because the Bible actually says they go away and make love. It is the most beautiful description of erotic intimacy. Why do you use such a dramatic word? Because we, we miss the, the beauty of the word eros. It's a very intimate phrase that God wants us to be with him. Worship is not an external performance. It's an inward reflection and surrender, a bride to a groom who allows herself to be loved. James A. Smith talks about that in his book on worship. Isn't that a good story? Can't we just end the book there? Oh, that was so good. Oh, God is so good. He's looked after. No, no, it doesn't end there. Why? Because providence, the great orchestra conductor God, who works and upholds everything and is the superintendent of all things, has not yet finished with the story. Go with me to the last chapter, if you don't mind. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he had made love to her, I love the beauty of the scriptures. Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Are you kidding? Hey, Grandma, this is the little rinky-dink kid born in a rinky-dink redneck town. I mean, listen, we all think our grandkids are the most amazing ever. My grandson is six foot four, he's 15. He has a, an extremely quick left arm bowler. Of course he's going to play for Australia. I know that I'm his grandpa. That's what we're supposed to think. I just hope my dad's dead by then because it will kill him. 
if my grandson plays for Australia. But, but, but she is saying, oh, just so cute, you know, Naomi. What? May he become famous throughout Israel. The woman standing around, Nuggies, Nuggies, oh, it's cute, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah, 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 yada, 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 yada. And Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. Now, surely the story can end here now. Now, now we got the story now. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1, please. Because in Matthew chapter 1, we find this most eloquent description of Jesus' photo album. It's an invitation for us to pull Jesus' photo album off the shelf, and it's as if the angel walks us through the reality of the humanity of Jesus. And right there it is. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Hang on a second. Didn't Naomi say that he's going to be famous throughout all of Israel? Well, read above. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, the whore, the prostitute, who sat and practiced and plied her trade on a city wall because she was ostracized from the people. Here in Jesus' photo album, it's not slipped away. Don't mention it. Don't, don't talk about, you know, <laughs> her. Here in the great providence of God is this redemptive story of God who takes the broken and the bruised and the devastated and the desperate and writes an eternal narrative around that. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. How did Naomi know? Was she just having a grandma moment? Or was the providence of God whispering into her ear from the loins of her daughter-in-law, one will come who will reign in Israel unlike any other warrior poet had in time, in space. Ladies and gentlemen, the providence of God is where God orchestrates time, accounts, he upholds all things by the power of his word, and he does what? We'll see in just a moment. And then, um, where am I? In verse 16, of ch uh, Matthew chapter 1, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, called the Messiah. That is providence. The only problem is we want me here now and if you don't do me here now you are a bad god my little granddaughter is one my wife is her absolute hero and meryl looks after the two grandkiddos every monday and i happened to pop in at home last week and and meryl said babe i just need to get something from the room and my little granddaughter is a passionate little thing Harry, she's a good little stick, you know what I'm saying? She's, she's got those wobbly legs. She's just like, <laughs> And suddenly from where she was playing, she dropped whatever. We got an, uh, uh, one level half. And, and she just dropped what she did, and she just started walking towards this. Thing. 
I said, Dad, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. And in that moment, I saw so many a Christian. Where are you, God? You were here a moment ago. I haven't heard you. I haven't seen you. You're obviously gone. The God of their own creation is not living up to their expectations. Are you okay, dear friends? If God wants to do something with your life after you're dead, are you okay if you'll never see your legacy this side of eternity? The providence of God is he weaves all the complexity of creation and the management of our human affairs and he brings it to a great climactic end, uh, ending under the guardian redeemer Jesus himself. And because we are a little delta, give me Amma and give her to me now, we cannot stand on our tippy toes to see Amma is upstairs in the bedroom getting something for me. Romans 8, I'm going to give you two scriptures and I'm done. For in this hope, Romans 8, 24, we, we were saved. But hope that is not seen is not hope at all. Sorry, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what we already have? If we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, little delta, the Spirit helps me in my weakness. When I do not know how to pray, Amma, 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 the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Not your dream. Where did we get that pop theology that God is even interested in your dream and mine? Where? Ruth, marry a middle-aged man. A good man, but a middle-aged man. Sure. Love him. Care for him. Have a kid with him. Sure. Why? Sure. And I don't know if I, my, my, the romantic me wants to know that an angel came to her one night and whispered, the greatest king in Israel's history will be born from the seed of your tender, vulnerable uncertain surrender providence how do we know uh, sorry we know that in all things would you mind saying that all things? all things God works for the good that is providence in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose one more Rome, uh, in Ephesians 1 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the guardian redeemer, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished. Listen to that word. Fathers, lavish your kids. Lavish your wife. Let them taste a little of who this guardian redeemer is. He is a lavisher. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in the guardian redeemer Christ. To put into effect, when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
This is the verse. Here it comes. You want to know what providence is? In Him. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. If we do not surrender to His will, we will never understand providence. We will be little delta at the bottom of the stairs crying out, Amma, 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 I want you now. Providence says, I want you according to your good pleasure and your good purpose, even if it happens after me. You know, folks, thank you for being so gracious to me and heeding my passion. One of the advantages of being older, some of you have asked for pictures of me, and then I look at the, the selfie you're taking, and I'm like, I'm not that old guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the guy, the gray, you know, the kind of, yeah, you're gone. That's what really matters. Am I teeing up my children to live a life more amazing than I ever, ever lived? Am I teeing up my church to be so passionate about Jesus, to live a life of sweet surrender under the quiet confidence that providence will sustain the calling even after I have died? Providence is a beautiful doctrine. And we make sense of the days in which we live not by our pseudo-political and psychological definitions, but by an understanding of the profound doctrines of the Scripture. If we ever are to study these truths, it is now. And allow God to quicken them to our mortal souls.